So Christ, our hope in life and death, not so for Roman Catholics, because you're going to see that they worship and trust a different Jesus who provides no hope. In fact, the only hope that the false Christ provides is a false hope. We do have handouts for people, so if you don't have one, we can get one to you on an empty chair. Well, this year we celebrate the 505th anniversary of the Reformation, yet so many pastors have forgotten what the Reformers did some 500 years ago. They gave their lives defending the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel, and it's really heartbreaking today to see evangelical leaders dismissing the importance of the Reformation or daring to say that it was a terrible mistake. Some evangelicals are now joining hands with Roman Catholics to reverse the Reformation in order to unite all Christians together. So where do you stand on this issue? If you're undecided, I hope by the end of this message you will have a strong conviction. But it's my prayer that this message will not only encourage us all to remain sanctified by the truth of God's word, but also to contend earnestly for the purity and exclusivity of the gospel, and most importantly, to recognize that the Roman Catholic religion is a huge mission field. So it was 500 years ago on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther defiantly nailed his 95 thesis to protest the selling of God's forgiveness through indulgences. He was outraged that salvation was being sold like any other commodity in the marketplace. And ever since our Lord delivered me out of spiritual darkness, I have been inspired by Martin Luther's single-mindedness and his unwavering fidelity to the truth of Scripture. He remained steadfast against all opposition, even under threats of death. He was the flashpoint that caused the long, smoldering doctrinal corruption within the Roman Catholic Church to suddenly burst forth in flames. Yet Luther took no credit for the Reformation. He knew it was the Word of God, empowered by men of God, (coughs) preaching the Word of God in the common language of the people that began setting people free from religious deception. So Luther's writings exposed many doctrinal errors within the Roman Catholic religion. After he was set free by the truth of God's Word, he began exposing the errors and indoctrination that once held him captive. And we have to keep in mind that unbelievers are held captive by the devil. That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul encouraged us to pray for those in opposition to the gospel, that God would grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth so they can escape the snare of the devil that holds them captive to do his will. And that's what the truth of God's word does. It sets captives free by abiding in God's word. So how quickly we forget. 505 years ago, the reformers called the Pope Antichrist as they were tortured and killed for proclaiming the gospel. Now many evangelicals call them their brother in Christ and also Holy Father. There was a recent survey done by Lifeway Research. They surveyed 1,000 senior pastors from evangelical and Protestant churches. Two-thirds of them say Pope Francis is their brother in Christ. More than one-third say they value the Pope's view on theology and that he has improved their view of the Catholic Church. These stunning statistics reported by Lifeway Research are the tragic results of the unity accords that have been signed since the 1990s. Most evangelicals do not know if the Roman Catholic Church represents a mission field of 1.3 billion precious souls or if it's a Christian denomination made up of brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is why we receive so much friendly fire in our ministry. Very few churches now will have us come in to equip their churches to reach out to this huge mission field because many of them think Roman Catholics are already Christians. Yet we are not deterred. We must continue to expose the false and fatal gospel of the Roman Catholic religion for the sake of Roman Catholics who are being deceived. 
And please understand, the nature of deception is that people never know they are deceived until they are confronted with the truth. And you and I are truth bearers. We have to lovingly confront Roman Catholics with the truth of the gospel. So by God's grace, we will continue to make the truth known and encourage evangelicals to do the same. The Vatican has attempted to reverse the Reformation for 500 years now, but more recently, since 1965. It was the Second Vatican Council that issued a decree on ecumenism. And ecumenism simply means an attempt to unite brothers and sisters together. So it was the 1990s that the Evangelicals and Catholics Together Accords began surfacing. The first one was in 1994, co-authored by Chuck Colson with Richard John Newhouse, a Roman Catholic priest. And then in 1999, Catholics and Lutherans signed a joint declaration on justification. This has got to be very disturbing for those who recognize that justification was really the major emphasis during the Reformation. Well, that's not good. Lord, we pray right now that the prince of the power of the air will not have any influence on the technology. In the power of Christ's name. 2009, the Manhattan Declaration was signed by many leading evangelicals. This statement said that Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and evangelicals share a common faith in the gospel. Now over 640,000 evangelicals have signed the Manhattan Declaration. And I want to name some names. Some of them are very shocking. You've got Ravi Zacharias, Al Mohler, J.I. Packer, Johnny Erickson Tata, Danny Aiken, Randy Elkhorn, Kay Author, Mark Bailey, former president of Dallas Seminary, Gary Bauer, James Dobson, Jack Graham, pastor of Prestonwood Baptist, Wayne Grudem, Tim Keller, Richard Land, Josh McDowell, David Platt, and a lot of most reverends and right reverends from the Roman Catholic religion. So this is what we're up against. Today, there's a really interesting phenomena going on in our churches. Many people choose to follow Christian personalities rather than the Word of God. My wife and I had a meeting with Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Seminary, for the purpose of pleading with him to take his name off the Manhattan Declaration. We said, Mark, people already know where you stand on the sanctity of life and and also the protection of marriage. But now people don't know where you stand on Roman Catholicism. And you know what his response was? Well, before I tell you what his response was, I said many people now are influenced by you being president of a conservative seminary that you've signed an accord stating that we share a common faith in the gospel. And so we asked him to take his name off because of his major influence. And you know, his his response was, well, Al Mohler signed it. My wife said, you've just made my husband's point. People are signing it because other people signed it, rather than considering that it is an error. So this is what the Manhattan Declaration stated. We are Christians, that is Catholics, Orthodox, and Evangelicals, who have joined together across historic lines of ecclesial differences to proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in its fullest. This is heartbreaking. Now I want to share with you the gospel of the Roman Catholic religion. This is the gospel that evangelicals say we are proclaiming together with Catholics. Roman Catholics, in order to be saved, they must have faith. And by the way, This faith doesn't have to be personal faith. When Roman Catholics are baptized at seven days old, they don't have the capacity to believe anything. And so it's their parents' faith that is instrumental in bringing them regeneration and justification. So they have to have faith plus baptism. They also have to receive the sacraments. They are necessary for salvation. 
They have to attend the sacrifice of the Mass, which is a propitiatory sacrifice. They must believe purgatory will purge away their sins. They must believe that indulgences can remit temporal punishment for sin. They must do good works in order to be justified. And they also have to keep the law. Now keep in mind what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. The Judaizers had come to town, and they said, We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. But if you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe that, but you need to be circumcised. What was Paul's response? Oh, let's have unity with all these brothers. They profess Christ just as we do. Paul said, no, let them be anathema. Let them be turned over to God for destruction. Let them be condemned because they dare to add one requirement to the gospel of grace. Now, when you think what the Judaizers were condemned for, look at what the Catholic Church has added to the gospel. This gospel is under a more severe anathema than the Judaizers. And yet we have all these evangelical leaders saying, no, we share the same faith in the gospel that Roman Catholics do. There's so much deception going on within the church today. Well, let's look at Rome's strategy for reversing the Reformation. It wants to proclaim that all roads lead to Rome, and they're urging separated brethren to come home to Rome for the fullness of salvation. Now, prior to 19... 64, Vatican II, you know what Rome called us? Heretics. But it's hard to woo people back home to Rome when you call them names. So now they call us separated brethren. And they say that we don't have the fullness of salvation because we don't have the Eucharist. This is the calling card for us all to go back home to Rome. That's the fullness of salvation that they're talking about. Another strategy, beguile people with Catholic mystics and contemplative spirituality. Henry Nouwen is one of the most quoted um, people in evangelical and Protestant churches today, a Roman Catholic mystic. They also want to seduce evangelicals to promote Catholicism as a valid expression of Christianity. How successful have they been with this strategy? Well, let me share with you some of the people that have embraced Catholicism as a visible and genuine form of Christianity. Here you see Rick Warren with Pope Francis. He's called Pope Francis our Pope, and he's pushed the Jesuit agenda for religious unity. Warren may be the most well-known pastor within the Southern Baptist denomination, His purpose-driven gospel has been responsible for creating more more false converts in the last 25 years, I think, than any other person. If you ever read his gospel in the purpose-driven life, he left out three very important ingredients, and they all begin with an R. He left out the resurrection of Christ. He left out the righteousness God requires for entrance into heaven. And he also left out repentance. But yet Rick Warren said, if you pray this prayer, welcome to the family of God. I think over 12 million people purchased that book and probably prayed that prayer. Now they think they're Christians because they prayed that prayer. But that's not all. We have Louis Palau. Louis Palau and I used to do conferences together and he would take our Spanish gospel tracts down to South America because he recognized the Catholic Church was a huge mission field. But when his buddy became Pope, Pope Francis was from Argentina, just like Louis Palau. Louis Palau said that Francis is a very Bible-centered and Jesus Christ-centered man. He's really centered on the pure gospel. He is a friend of evangelicals. How quickly he turned when his friend became Pope. Here's a couple of disturbing quotes. Robert Jeffers, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. You've probably seen him on the Fox News Network. He said when Pope Benedict resigned that this Pope was a wonderful, dedicated Christian man, and we celebrate the ministry he's had. 
He said this on a television program as he was being interviewed. When I saw that, I immediately emailed him because Robert and I have also done conferences together. We do have a relationship. And I asked him a question. I said, how can you encourage evangelicals to celebrate the ministry of a pope who shut the gates of heaven with a false and fatal gospel to 1.3 billion Roman Catholics? And he emailed me back and he said, Mike, whenever I'm on TV, I cannot bash Catholics. And I emailed back and I said, that wasn't my question. You could have done one of three things. You could have spoke the truth, which you chose not to do. You could have remained neutral, which you chose not to do. Or you could have misled people by telling them to celebrate the ministry of a false prophet. And then you have Al Mohler. He said Pope Benedict was one of the most brilliant theological minds of our times. Al Mohler is president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, he said this on a radio broadcast. He was interviewing Roman Catholic Archbishop Charles Chaput. And I made this interview available in my monthly newsletter because I wanted everybody to be able to hear the exact words that Al Mohler used. So he's saying that Pope Benedict, who was responsible for the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the authority of the Catholic Church, which preaches a false and fatal gospel, this, Al, this Pope who wrote the Catechism, who's under divine condemnation, Al Mohler says, is the most brilliant theological mind of our times. Now, you know what theology means. It's the study of God. How can Al Mohler make this statement? What impact do you think his statement has had on those who are questioning whether or not Catholics need to be evangelized or not? Can you see why we have to test every Christian personality as good Bereans, test everything they say with the authority of God's word? This quote is even more troubling. This is a pastor who graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. When John Paul II died, he published this comment in the church magazine with a picture of John Paul II and Mother Teresa. He said, the rift that occurred between Catholics and Protestants 500 years ago is theological pettiness. We'll have plenty of time in heaven to figure out who was right about purgatory and Mary. John Paul was a man of God whom all Christians should admire, thank, and emulate. In other words, he is saying that the Reformers were brutally murdered and burned at the stake for theological pettiness. This is heartbreaking. Again, when I heard this quote, I immediately went to Irving Bible Church and I said, can I come in and have an opportunity to set the record straight? Catholics need to be evangelized. This is a misrepresentation of the word of God. But they said, no, Mike, we know all about your ministry and you're not welcome here. Well, we have to recognize that those who promote unity with false teachers without challenging their errors leave their own convictions and beliefs open to question. We may all be accountable for the souls who are misled by our unwillingness to contend earnestly for the faith. We all need to defend the glory and honor of our great God and Savior. What's at stake if we don't? The sanctity of his church, the purity of his gospel, and ultimately the eternal destiny of those who are being deceived. I want to share with you a tragic paradox. We are to love the Catholic people by giving them the gospel, but hate the religion that deceives them. I hope you can see the distinction here. I love Roman Catholics. I've dedicated my life to reaching them with the gospel, but I hate the institution that deceives them. But many evangelicals have it reversed. They do the opposite. They love the Catholic religion, and in doing so, they hate Catholics by denying their need for the true gospel. Those who love the lost will speak the truth in love and expose the error that holds them in bondage. So why was the Reformation necessary? The Roman Catholic Church had distorted the gospel and was under divine condemnation. The Roman Catholic Church was worshiping a false Christ. 
Roman Catholic Church believes Jesus returns to the earth every day at the beck and call of a priest. But yet, by the authority of Scripture, we can say that this is a false Christ because in Hebrews 9.28, it says he will return a second time, not every day. And when he returns, it will not be in relation to sin. This, as you know, is offered up on an altar as a propitiatory sacrifice. So by the authority of Scripture, they worship a false Christ. The Catholic Church had departed from the faith to follow doctrines of demons. The Apostle Paul warned us in 1 Timothy 4, in latter times some will depart from the faith and follow doctrines of demons. And then he goes on to name one, forbidding people to marry. Do you know of any other Christian church that forbids its people to marry? I think I shared yesterday the other doctrine of demons that the Catholic Church continues is the first lie of Satan in the garden. They don't believe that all sins are mortal. Roman Catholics have another category of sin called venial sin. That's where most Catholics believe they are, committing venial sins. And it doesn't cause death, only temporal punishment and purgatory. Well, in the garden, the serpent deceived Adam and Eve by saying, if you break God's command, you surely shall not die. And that's the doctrine of venial sins. The Reformation was also necessary because Catholic priests were false mediators who continued the work of redemption on an altar that Jesus finished on the cross. Not too long ago, I was invited up to a church in Emporia, Kansas, and I was to equip all the saints to reach out to the Catholics in that community. So Saturday afternoon, after we had gone through how to witness effectively to Catholics, we went out to the Catholic church. And whenever I visit a town, I try to have an appointment with a Catholic priest, but this particular priest was too busy to visit with me. But as we walked into the church to witness to Catholics who were attending the Mass that afternoon, the light over the confessional box was on, and that told me that the priest was inside hearing confession. So I turned to my wife and the elder. I said, pray for me. I'm going to go to confession and talk to the priest. So I went in there and I said, it's been 30 years since my last confession. I don't even know where to begin. He said, well, don't you worry. When you leave here, I'll forgive you of all your sins. And then he said, why has it been 30 years? I said, well, I've been reading the Bible. Well, how has that kept you from the confessional box? Well, what I've been reading in the Bible goes against what I was taught as a Catholic. He said, give me an example. I said, well, in John 19.30, Jesus cried out in victory, it is finished, so why do you continue on an altar with Jesus finished on the cross? He said, give me another example. I said, well, in 1 John 1.7, it says the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all sin, so why do we need purgatory? He said, I can see this is going to take longer than I thought. <laughs> So he said, why don't you call me on Monday and we'll continue the conversation. So I flew back to Dallas and I called him and by then he knew why we were there. He said, why are you proselytizing us? Don't you know we're all Christians? I said, no, as I shared with you in the confessional, you have a different gospel. And then I started to share the true gospel with him. About five minutes in, he said, you know what? I was born a Catholic and I'm going to die a Catholic. I said, no. Not according to the Bible, you were born a sinner and you're going to die a sinner unless you repent and believe the gospel. Well, then he hung up on me. But you know what? At least I had an opportunity to share the gospel with him. No. So let's look at Reformation teaching. You have sola scriptura. That simply means the Bible is the content of our salvation. Scripture alone is our authority for knowing truth. Sola gratia, that is the means by which God saves sinners. It is by grace without merit. By the way, Romans 11.6 makes this clear. If it's by grace, it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Sola fide is the instrument of salvation. God saves through faith apart from works. And solus Christus is the Mediator, mediator of salvation, Christ and his righteousness alone. And then we have sola deo gloria, 
the provider of salvation is the triune God. He alone is glorified and no one else. The five solas of the Reformation, this was the heart of the gospel. These five key truths define the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They form the, biblical, they form the pil- pillars of biblical Christianity. And unfortunately, as you've seen today, many evangelicals have forgotten these five solas. But why were they necessary? Well, the five solas were a response to the Vatican errors on justification. The Catholic Church then, 500 years ago and now today, teaches that you are saved by grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, scripture plus tradition, and glory goes to God as well as Mary and all the saints. So at the Council of Trent, which we know as the Roman Catholic Church's response to the Reformation, this is where they officially and dogmatically departed from the faith of the apostles. The apostasy was gradual. It was over 1,600 years. But this is where they drove a stake in the ground, and they dared to say they issued over 100 anathemas that condemn you and I for believing the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt in anybody's mind that the Roman Catholic religion is an apostate form of Christianity. All you have to do is pick up the Council of Trent and see how born-again Christians are condemned over 100 times. There's only two anathemas in the Bible. Did you know that? One is if you distort the gospel. The other one is if you do not love God. Well, the Catholic Church has come up with 100 anathemas that condemn you and I. So why, what did the Reformation accomplish? Let's look at that. It returned the Bible to the people in their own language. You see a picture here of the Wartburg Castle in Germany. This is where Martin Luther hid out translating the Bible into the German language. The Reformation also reestablished the word of God as the supreme authority in all matters of faith. It was at the Council of Trent that the Catholic Church elevated their tradition to be equal in authority to the word of God. By the way, many Catholics today will tell you that sola scriptura is a Protestant tradition. You can acknowledge that because it wasn't necessary for the first 1600 years of the church. Everybody knew the Bible was the supreme authority. It wasn't until Trent where they elevated tradition to be equal that the reformers cried out sola scriptura. The Reformation also reestablished the Lord Jesus Christ as the sole head of the church. He's the only one who purchased the church with his own blood. And the Reformation recovered the biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. So the Reformation was a reawakening to the fact that men can be saved by reading the Bible unaided by the church. That's what happened to Martin Luther. It was the word of God and the spirit of God that brought salvation. And my conversion was very similar. I opened the Bible for the first time at age 35 and began reading it. The truth of God's word slapped me in the face. I realized I had been deceived all those years by believing the teachings of the Catholic Church, which could not be held in conformity to the word of God. It was the Spirit of God that brought illumination and conviction, and the Lord Jesus saved me. And my life has never been the same. The Lord literally turned my life upside down. Well, Luther said justification was the very hinge upon which the gates of heaven open and close. It is the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you get justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. A man cannot be right with God if he gets justification wrong. That's how important it is. So I want to spend a little bit of time just sharing with you the contrast between biblical justification and Roman Catholic justification. We know that the doctrine of justification declares the inflexible righteousness of God as the judge who must punish every sin that has ever been committed by everyone who has ever lived. Because God is holy and righteous, 
he must punish every sin. The only way condemned sinners can be justified is through faith in the sin-bearing, substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ alone who satisfied divine justice. The greatest accomplishment of the Reformation was to show people how they could become right with God. The Reformers rediscovered this most important doctrine of justification. So let's look at the contrasting views. The Bible tells us that tells us that justification is the change of one's legal status. That's why you see a gavel on the screen. This is when God changes the status of a condemned sinner. He's been acquitted and now been declared righteous. Not because he is, but because he's been imputed with the righteousness of Christ But Rome says, no, justification changes the inner man. It does not change his legal status. Paragraph 2019 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By the way, the paragraph numbers you see on the screen, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that Pope Benedict wrote that Al Mohler said he's the best theologian of our time. Justification is instantaneous. We see that in Romans 4.3. But Rome says, no, it's not instantaneous. It's a process. It's the ongoing renewal of the interior man. Are you starting to see how they're confusing sanctification with justification? Rome says initial justification is by the sacrament of water baptism. And yet a baby, seven days old, has no capacity to believe anything which goes against the Bible, of course. The Bible says justification is by faith in what God has accomplished in Christ, Romans 5.1. The Bible teaches that justification is permanent. It's never lost by sin. The legal status of a justified man is as unchangeable as the righteousness of Christ. A great verse to share with Roman Catholics is Hebrews 10.14. By one offering... He has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. The righteousness of Christ credited to the sinner's account whereby he has a permanent right standing before God. But Rome says no. Justification is temporal. It can be lost by sin and regained through the sacrament of penance and good works. That's why you see two arrows on the screen Every time a Catholic does good works or receives more sacraments, they have an increase in their standing before God. When they commit venial sins, they lose some of their right standing. A mortal sin means they're de-justified. And now they need to be re-justified by confessing confessing their sin to a priest and doing penance. The Bible declares that God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4.5. Rome says no. Final justification is for those who have become righteous. And there you see the paragraph numbers, 2016 and 2020. The Bible teaches that justification is the imputation of Christ's completed righteousness to the justified sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21 has become my favorite verse because there the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is summarized in one verse. He, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the greatest exchange in human history. By faith in Christ as our substitute, he takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, and the wrath that we deserve, and what does he give us in return? His perfect righteousness. Rome says justification is the infusion of righteousness which once again renews the interior man. It's almost like you're getting a blood transfusion every time you get a sacrament. You're infused with more and more righteousness. The Bible declares that justification is by grace apart from works. The righteousness of Christ is given as a free gift. We see that in Romans 5.17, the gift of Christ's righteousness. Rome says justification must include good works. Rejustification must be merited 
by making satisfaction for sins through penance, works of mercy, prayer, and on and on and on. It is a works righteousness salvation. Well, there's a few more points I want to make. The Bible teaches that God promises to glorify everyone he justifies because of the great promise in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I was on a cruise to Israel, a teaching cruise, and there was a Roman Catholic priest on board. And I asked him, I said, is it true that you believe an infant is justified at water baptism? Yes, that's what we teach. And later on, if that infant grows up and commits a mortal sin and dies in that state, they go to hell. Yes, that's what we teach. Well, how do you explain Romans 8.30? Those God justifies, he glorifies. He scratched his head and said, you know, we just don't have an answer for that one. Rather than submit to the authority of God's inspired word, we just don't have an answer. Therefore, we're going to keep teaching what we teach. Rome says God will condemn to hell everyone who is justified but who dies in mortal sin. The Bible teaches that after justification, all sins are no longer taken into account or punished. A couple of verses there. Blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. Romans 4.8 2 Corinthians 5.18, God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ, not counting men's sins against them. But Rome says, no, all sins committed after justification may be punished either in purgatory or in hell. Can you see the contrast in justification, the core of the gospel? Well, in summary, let's look at Rome's doctrine of justification is antithetical to the biblical doctrine. One was revealed by God. The other was invented by man. One is by grace alone. The other is by merit. One offers divine assurance. The other offers only a false hope. So if this antithesis is disregarded like many evangelicals are doing today. The very meaning and the very purpose of the gospel is lost. Oh, how I wish all those people that I named early would have an opportunity to just sit down and listen to the difference in the gospel and the doctrine of justification. Maybe then they might take their name off the Manhattan Declaration Well, we are devoted ambassadors for Christ, and we must not blur the lines between these antithetical teachings. We must not paint gray what God has painted black and white. So another Jesus always leads to another gospel. You see what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11.4, if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the one we preached... Or if you receive a different spirit or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it. Other translations may say you bear this beautifully. In other words, Paul is saying rather than contending for the true gospel and the true Jesus led by the true spirit, you just put up with all the false Christ and false gospels that are being proclaimed today. Well, I want to introduce to you the Jesus that I worshiped. For 35 years of my life. It is indeed another Jesus. The Catholic Jesus did not save sinners completely. The Catholic Jesus did not give the assurance of salvation. The Catholic Jesus did not pay the complete punishment for sin. He did not purify all sins, which is why Catholics need purgatory. He returns physically to the earth every day at the beck and call of a priest to be transubstantiated into the inner substance of a wafer, to be worshipped, which, by the way, is idolatry. This is a false Christ. And then he's laid on the altar to be offered again as a sin offering, a propitiatory sacrifice. So often I'm asked the question, if a Catholic converts to Christ, can he stay in the Catholic Church? Well, first of all, why would he want to? 
when he recognized he was deceived by this institution. But the second question is, God seeks worshipers in spirit and truth, so why would you worship God in a church that deceives people with a false Christ and a false gospel? Now, a Catholic cannot continue because to worship this is idolatry. And it's no different than the Israelites who put together all their gold to form a golden calf to worship the true God that delivered them out of Egypt. What was their fate for this sin of idolatry? God showed he hated idolatry by putting 3,000 of them to death. So Catholics who have been converted must come out. The Catholic Jesus did not finish the work of redemption. It continues on the altars every day. The Catholic Jesus did not redeem man from the curse of the law. Catholics must still obey the law to be saved. He did not. The Catholic Jesus is not the only sinless mediator. Do you know who else the Catholics have as a sinless mediator? Mary. Mary. She's the mediatrix of all grace. And the Catholic Jesus is not the only way. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 841, says Muslims are also part of God's plan of salvation. Muslims who deny the deity of Christ and deny that he went to the cross, they are part of the Catholic plan of salvation. But you and I, who believe in his sufficiency, we are condemned over 100 times with anathemas. Well, Catholicism rejects the sufficiency of Christ in many different ways. To his headship, they add a pope. To his word, they add their tradition. By the way, the Catholic Church says their tradition is the word of God. They have added to the word of God. To his finished work, they add the sacrifice of the mass. To his merit, they add a treasury of merit. Now, this is an invisible treasury, but it's said to contain the inexhaustible merits of Christ, commingled with the merits of Mary and all the saints that died with more than enough merit to get them to heaven. And the Pope transfer these merits to those who are suffering in purgatory to reduce their time, but he refuses to do so unless they are purchased. By the way, that was the spark of the Reformation, the selling of God's forgiveness. The Catholic Church denies the sufficiency of Jesus by adding purgatory to his purifying blood. To his satisfaction for sin, they add their own satisfaction. Catholics must make satisfaction for their sins. To his high priestly office, they add their own priest. By the way, when the Lord Jesus gave up his spirit, the veil separating the Holy of Holies from sinful man was torn open from top to bottom, showing now by faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. Amen. We no longer need priests offering sacrifices for sin that can never take away sin. But yet the Catholic Church is an extension of Judaism. They have their sacerdotal priesthood that continues to offer sin offerings that can never take away sin. <coughs> And to his role as only sinless mediator, they add Mary. So there are two paths to eternity that our Lord Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7. I mentioned my uncle was a Roman Catholic priest, and whenever he came to visit us, we would open the Bible. We would plead with him to believe the word of God over the traditions of his church. I remember he got so frustrated one night he couldn't answer the word of God. And he threw up his hands and said, Mike, how can one billion Catholics be wrong? I said, let's let Jesus answer that question. We turn to Matthew 7. The Lord Jesus said, we must enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Just because there's a billion Catholics traveling down the wide road does not mean it is the true way. The Lord Jesus said it leads to destruction. There are two groups on two different paths to eternity. One group is guided by pure truth. The other is by truth mixed with error. And isn't how that, that's how the devil operates. No one's going to believe an outright lie. So what does he do? He, he coats a false and fatal gospel with a thin veneer of truth. One group follows the Lord Jesus, the true shepherd, 
The other group follows false shepherds. That's the context of Matthew 7. There's false teachers standing in front of the narrow way saying it's not here, it's the broad way. One group is saved by undeserved grace, the other by works. One group is entered because of divine accomplishment, the other through human achievement. And you know there's really only two faiths in this world, right? One is trusting in the divine accomplishment of Christ, the other is trusting in what man must do. We have a gospel tract that says you can never do what Christ has done, defeating the whole idea of works, righteousness, salvation. One road is traveled by the humble and merciful who know they deserve hell, the other by the proud and self-righteous who think they deserve heaven. One group will arrive expectantly because of God's promises. The other will be surprised when they arrive at their final destination because they've been deceived about life's most critical issue. There's nothing more cruel than a false teacher deceiving people about what they must do to be saved. My last semester at Dallas Seminary, I put together these two paths to eternity, and they're available in our Roman Catholicism Scripture Verses Tradition track. And you will see that the Roman Catholic path to eternity is something that every Catholic we've ever shown this to believes that they are on. They believe they're destined for hell, but water baptism puts them on the road to heaven. As they commit venial sins, they lose some of their right standing before God. But when they commit a mortal sin, they are de-justified. They're destined for hell again. They need to be re-justified by the sacrament of penance. As a Catholic, I went through this cycle hundreds of times, never knowing where I stood before a holy and righteous God. At the end of a Catholic's life, if he's never heard the gospel, or if he's heard it and rejected it, he will stand before the Lord Jesus at the great white throne and hear the most terrifying words anyone could ever hear when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. It's for this reason I have such a compassion for Roman Catholics. I traveled this road for 35 years. And it's for this reason I am so glad that you attended this seminar because I hope you go back to your churches and your people that you have influence over and you let them know that Catholics need to be evangelized. And we need to point them to the biblical path to eternity. It's not water baptism, but it's faith in Jesus Christ. At that very moment, the gavel comes down. We are justified. And we begin the process of sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, putting to death the evil deeds of the flesh and conforming our life to the life of Christ. There's that great promise in Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And at the end of a believer's life, hopefully we'll stand before the Lord Jesus and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then we'll sing his praises throughout all eternity. Amen. What a glorious gospel we have to proclaim. Well, God's word declares that grace alone is for our salvation. Faith alone is for our security. Christ alone is our sufficiency. Scripture alone is the supreme authority. And glory to God alone is our service to him. He receives all the glory. We have a glorious gospel to to proclaim. There are times when I would embarrass my wife, but she's used to it now. I was uh, equipping a church up in Munster, Texas, and that's a community of about 90% Roman Catholics. And after equipping the church all day Saturday, they had me come stay over and do the Sunday morning message. So we were sitting in the cafe that morning before the message, and I looked over the restaurant. There's about 50 people And I did the math. I figured, well, 45 are Roman Catholic. So as we began leaving the restaurant, something came over me. And I don't know if it was conviction of the Holy Spirit, but I turned around. I picked up a spoon and I started banging on the glass. And the whole restaurant became quiet. I said, now that I have your attention, 
I want you to know I've come all the way from Dallas to show you how you can have your sins completely forgiven and be reconciled to God. And I'm going to give that message across the street at the Baptist Church, and all of you are welcome to come. So we walked out of that restaurant, and my wife looked at me. She said, Munster, Texas, no problem, but if you ever do it in Dallas, I will kill you. (laughs) Well, the fact that I'm still alive, you know I haven't got there. But how do we witness to Catholics? Remember three things. We must establish the Bible as the supreme authority. You do that with Acts 17.11. Every man's teaching must be tested by the authority of God's word. Jesus is sufficient to save sinners completely and forever. Catholics will never be willing to let go of what they are doing until they know Christ is sufficient. And thirdly, we need to share with them the promise of the gospel is eternal, everlasting life. All Catholics have is conditional life. They need to know that the promise is eternal life. So, how do you direct a conversation to spiritual things as you're engaging Roman Catholics? Remember that people don't know how much you care until they know how much you know. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, the best way to do that is by asking questions, right? Because you're showing a genuine interest in them. So here are some of the questions. When and how were you born again? You know that is not taught in the Catholic Church. And yet Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Where will you spend eternity? We just produced a gospel track by that name. It's a great question to ask. Do you know the answer you'll get most often? Well, I hope I'm good enough for heaven. Well, the Bible says you can know for sure. It's not based on what you do, but on what Christ has done. This is a great question. Why did Jesus have to die? You'll be surprised how few people know the answer. I mean, even evangelical Christians, most of them will say, well, it's because... He loved us. Well, that was his motivation. Why did he have to die? Some will say because of our sin. But why did he have to die for our sin? I don't know. You tell me. The wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin is death. Someone has to die as the punishment for sin. Jesus died as a substitute for all those who would trust in him to die in their place. By the way, I asked a couple of young children that came by the table to get the honor. They had the answer. I'm so impressed. Is purgatory necessary to purify your sins? If Catholics say yes, take them to 1 John 1, 7. Take them to Hebrews 1. When he obtained purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Why do priests continue what Jesus said is finished? You want to challenge them in their unbelief. What did Jesus mean when he said it is finished? The work of redemption is finished. Are you trusting what Christ has done or what you are doing? Well, I hope by now you can see that Catholics and Christians cannot be united through these ecumenical unity accords. We are divided on many different things. We're divided on the essentials of the gospel. We're divided on how one is born again. The Catholic Church says it's the sacrament of water baptism. We know it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We're divided on how one is justified. You saw the contrast between biblical justification and Catholic justification. We're divided on how one is purified of sin. We're divided on who mediates between God and man. Catholics have many different mediators, but in 1 Timothy 2.5 it says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one qualified. He's God's perfect man and man's perfect God. We're divided on the sufficiency and the necessity of our Lord Jesus Christ. There cannot be any unity with Roman Catholics. We're divided on the road to eternity. The only way 
Roman Catholics will have a desire to get on the narrow way is to show them that they are on the broad way that leads to destruction. That is the only hope they have. We must lovingly confront them with the truth of the gospel. That is the only way that they will know they're deceived. John MacArthur has had a very clarion voice on this ecumenical unity business since 1990. It was John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and James Kennedy that got together in opposition to all those evangelicals that were signing the unity accords. And this is a statement he made about the Catholic Church. In the long war on the truth, the most formidable, relentless and deceptive enemy has been Roman Catholicism. It is an apostate, corrupt, heretical, false Christianity. It is a front for the kingdom of Satan. John says this because he wants people to know the truth. He has a great love for Roman Catholics, great compassion for them. He wants to see evangelicals evangelize them and to recognize it's a mission field. So what must you and I do after a message like this? What's the application? Well, we need to remain sanctified by the truth. We cannot compromise with those who do not hold the truth of God's word. We need to enlist in the Lord's army to fight the good fight of faith. I hope you realize that there is a relentless war going on right now for the souls of men. I really believe Satan knows his days are numbered. He's got an all-out assault on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest attack on Christianity today, is the exclusivity of the gospel. We need to test every teaching with God's word and encourage others to be good Bereans. Don't follow Christian personalities who go against God's word. We need to stand firm. We need to contend earnestly for the faith, not passively, not whenever we feel like it, earnestly, recognizing there's a battle for the souls of men. We can never, ever let a lie of the devil go unabated. And when we're in a conversation and someone spews a lie of the devil, you have every right to stand for the glory and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the personification of truth. What's, what's at stake if we don't? His glory and honor and the sanctity of his church. We need to evangelize those who are lost in religion. We have a couple of resources to help you do that. My book, Preparing for Eternity, has set so many Roman Catholics free from the bondage of religious deception. And the reason it does is because in my book, I did the same thing that the Lord helped me do when I was 35 years old. I present the truth of God's word right alongside the teachings and traditions of the Catholic Church, showing that it's impossible to believe both. As Catholics read this book, they have to make a choice. Should I trust Christ in his word or continue to trust the teachings and traditions of my religion? It's impossible to believe both. And so this is why the truth of God's word has set so many Catholics free. We have people buying these 10 and 12 at a time to give to their Catholic friends because it's not only a book that will equip you to be more effective witnesses to Catholics, but it's a book that Catholics will read and recognize they've been deceived. And then my second book is Contending for the Gospel. This is a recognition that the gospel is under attack like never before. And so it's a book that will equip you to fight the good fight of faith. It's not only the ecumenical movement that's attacking the exclusivity of the gospel. There are many seeker-friendly churches that are producing false converts because they've compromised the gospel, watered it down to the point it has no power to save. So an excellent book for the time in which we live. We also have eight different gospel tracks. You can see the red one that has the two paths to eternity. This is our newest one, where we spend eternity. This is the one that deals with works righteousness. We never mention Roman Catholicism in here, but it's a great track to give to Catholics to recognize that they are trying to do something they can never do because Christ has done it all. The one here, the greatest news, has all scripture. 
When you give that away, you're literally sowing the imperishable seed of God's word. And Peter has that promise. When it finds fertile soil, it it will produce life. Some of our messages are available on DVD with all the PowerPoint. This is how we began our ministry 30-some years ago, 31 years ago, inviting Roman Catholics over to our house to show a gospel video. Within three months, we saw 17 Roman Catholics exchange their religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it didn't go well with everyone. Some of them got up and stormed out so mad they slammed the door and put cracks in the wall. But what about those who repented and believed the gospel? We also have what I shared briefly yesterday, the 12 most important words of the gospel. You see them here. You start with God who is holy and righteous and just, our creator who created man perfectly. Man fell into sin. Now he needs the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And it is only by his work on the cross and resurrection And it is only by grace, through faith and repentance, that you can receive the gift of salvation and the righteousness of Christ by believing the truth of God's word. And on the back of each one of these cards, you have four bullet points defining and explaining what each word means. This enables you to go deeper into the gospel so it flows more freely from your lips. It's also a tool that you can use to lay out in front of people and ask them, knowing that your eternal destiny hangs in the balance, which one of these words would you like to know more about? They can pick it up, look it over, read the four bullet points, and then ask them, is this is what you understand the word to mean? And then go on to another word. Remember our website, proclaimingthegospel.org. We have a free monthly e-newsletter that goes out sign up at our resource table. And this next newsletter that goes out July 1st, we're going to deal with how Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers from the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And with Roman Catholics, he does it two ways, with religious indoctrination and with religious pride. Those are the two greatest obstacles you have to overcome as you witness to Roman Catholics. But you do it through the power of God's word, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So thank you again for attending the seminar, and I hope this has been helpful. Um, Let me close in prayer, and then if you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. Our Father, we do thank you that you have left us your inspired, inerrant, authoritative word, which we can test every man's teaching with. Father, we thank you for the incarnate word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed our all-sufficient Savior, Thank you for the glorious gospel we have to proclaim. And thank you for the opportunity to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ to take his message to a lost and dying world. Father, we pray that you would give us open doors of opportunity, that we would contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We ask this for the glory of Christ and in the power of his name. Amen. So any questions with anything? Yes. Yes. Sure. John 6:54 is where Jesus said, "You must eat my body and drink my blood for the salvation." Right. Now, what you do is you contrast John 6:54 with John 6:40. In John 6:40, Jesus said, "You must behold and believe for eternal life. Then you will be raised on the last day." So you ask a Catholic, what if you behold and believe, but you don't eat and drink? The result is the same, eternal life, and you'll be raised on the last day. But what if you eat and drink, but you don't behold and believe? Do you have eternal life? The only way you can take both of these words, these verses, is to take one literally and one figuratively. The literal presentation is behold and believe. The figurative, Jesus is speaking of spiritual nourishment. You must eat of my body and drink of my flesh for eternal life. And then remember, the unbelievers left. By the way, whenever Jesus spoke in parables, it was in a mixed audience. In this audience in John 6, he was speaking to both believers and unbelievers. 
when he made these hard sayings, the unbelievers left. And then he asked Peter, Peter, are you going to go also? What did Peter say? No, you have the flesh of eternal life. No, you have the words of eternal life. And then Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spiritual. He's speaking spiritual nourishment. See, what happened is these people just followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. He had just fed the 5,000. Now they're looking for another free lunch. But Jesus shifts gears. Now he's talking about spiritual nourishment. I'm not feeding you again physical food. I'm giving you spiritual nourishment. Yeah, First John 1 John 1.9 gives you the answer. Uh, you confess to the Father. See, when you were an unbeliever, God was your judge. When you were adopted into God's family, he's now your father. So in 1 John 5.9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is a loving father asking you to confess to him to restore the relationship. Your sin has already been judged. God is no longer your judge. He's now your loving Father. So you keep short accounts by confessing your sins to the Father to maintain that intimate relationship with Him. Right. Right. The sin has already been judged on the cross. Now, a good verse to take Catholics to is Acts 8, where Simon the sorcerer was trying to purchase the gift of God with his money. What did Peter, who Catholics believe was the first pope, tell him to do? Go directly to God and confess your sin, and perhaps God will forgive you. It's in Acts chapter 8. Simon the Sorcerer is the context there. Yes. Sure, thank you.